0: All right, we're going to spend some time opening up the Bible now, and so we're entering into a new series, a new series which has a really exciting name, okay, for the next five weeks. Our new series is called I Heart Clean, so they've already kind of done the pre-introduction with their t-shirts. Some of you have your t-shirts on today. Thank you very much. There is an I Heart Clean website that our pastors, our assistant pastor started a few years ago, so you can go and buy a shirt if you want one for uh, way too much money because they're just like... One at a time printing, you know, the way you order them there. But we got a lot of cool shirts you can buy there if you want to. I Heart Colleen, How the Gospel Challenges Us to Love Our City. So we're entering into what we would call a topical series. Primarily, what we do as a church is we do expositional preaching series or expository. Those are two ways of saying what we do is take the Bible and study it book by book verse by verse, passage by passage. That's our main diet as a church, and we think that's good to make that our primary diet, because what that does is it protects you against my hobby horses, right? Because otherwise, if I'm doing topical every week, I'm just going to start to tell you my favorite topic of the week, and I'm going to avoid all the hard stuff, right? So we try to primarily do expositional or expository sermons, but it's okay to do topical services or topical sermons, and that's what we're doing over the next few weeks. So we're going to have five different sermons from different areas of the Bible that are talking about what it means to love the place that God has called us to, right? Um, and so the funny thing is, when you wear the I Heart Clean shirt, if you buy one, I just wanna prepare you for what's gonna happen. If you wear one of these I Heart Clean shirts, you're gonna get one of two reactions, because I've got like four of them and I wear them all the time. Uh, either people are gonna laugh at you or they're gonna get angry at you, okay? <laughs> Strange reaction. Here's the thing, it leads to great... Gospel conversations. Why on earth do we love Colleen? Because Jesus first loved us. That's it. So if you don't hear anything else, Steve already gave you a good pre sermon, and that's, that's pretty much the summary. We love Colleen because Jesus loved us first. Um, and as an aside, we don't just mean strictly Colleen, right? We don't just mean the 160,000 people that live in the city limits. It's okay if you live in Copper's Cove or Harker Heights, we love you too, okay? I actually live in Harker Heights. When we planted the church, we didn't know if the church was going to be in Heights or Clean or where it was. A lot of our first founders lived in Heights. So we bought a house in Heights, started going, and then we found a, a building here in Clean, And we've kind of moved farther in and we're excited about that. What we're talking about is kind of the general area. God calls us to love the area that he sent us to. Acts chapter 17 says that God puts you here on purpose. So you might think that you're here by accident, or you might think that you chose to move here. You might think that the army chose to put you here. But Acts chapter 17 says God decides where people are going to live, where people are going to be born, where people are going to work. And he does that for his glory. So that's a big idea, that we would glorify God by living well where he's placed us. And we're going to see that as we look at this series over the next five weeks. Today, we're calling it How to Love Our City. How to Love Our City, Jeremiah 29. And again, you can think of city as just like your neighborhood, or you can think of city as the greater metro statistical area, right? Our metro statistical area, as kind of a greater city area, is about 500,000 people now. I think it's actually close to 600,000 people, and it's a three county area Bell County, Coriel County, and Lampasas County. Um, if you just talk about Bell County, it's about 350 to 400,000 people, so it's a pretty significant city. Uh, some of you have come from much better cities, right? I've heard they exist, beautiful places with trees, mountains, beaches, things like that. Some of you have come from much worse cities, right? So sometimes the where you come from affects your perspective on a place. Here's the deal. God is building for us the ultimate city, our home in heaven. So that's our true home. That's what we're looking forward to. And that hope, Hebrews 11 tells us, is what enables us to do well in the here and now, whether we're in the, the best city, the worst city, or maybe a middle of the road city like Colleen, Texas. So we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29. It can be found on I think page 656. I didn't write it down in my notes, but anybody got one of those black Bibles open? Does that sound right? 656. Okay, page 656 in the black Bibles. It's just about the middle of our Bibles, Jeremiah's and. Old Testament prophet who was prophesying God's word to the exile people. So what does that mean? That means that God's people were moved out of God's place because of their disobedience into another place, and then God is teaching them how to live when when they're in the place they don't want to be, okay? So they're in the place they don't want to be. God's teaching them how to live in this place. Um, And just to give a little background, I want to tell a story about when we first moved to a new house. First new house that my family bought, um, we decided, we'd always lived in suburban areas on the, on the outskirts of a city, we decided we wanted to go to the city center of the city. Not, not clean, it was a different city. It was 20 years ago. So we had a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old, and we said, you know, it'd be really cool to be a part of the urban renewal of this kind of old, dying downtown. And some renewal was already happening. It wasn't like we were the first ones, right? But we moved into a semi-rough neighborhood. We were fixing up a house. We just thought it was really cool to be a part of the renewal here. And also, as a side bonus, we really loved like 1915 bungalows. So we got to, you know, buy a cool old house and fix that up as well. We loved the front porch and all that. Well, we had just moved in. We'd been there a few months, and we're starting to kind of feel settled, um, we'd put our youngest to bed and I was reading bedtime stories to the four-year-old and the five-year-old. Um, I think it was late summer, early fall. So, you know, the sun was still out streaming through the beautiful big windows of our bungalow. There's the front porch. We're, we're in the living room up front. I'm reading stories. My, my cute little kids are snuggling up to me in their PJs. I'm reading a story. It's like a picture perfect moment, Right. Like, this is home. Like, this is, this is what I thought I was signing up for when I became a dad. This is what I thought I was signing up for when we bought this house in this downtown place. Like, this is so sweet and beautiful. And we're reading the story and we're enjoying it. And the kids are paying attention and they're having fun and we're snuggling and everything's perfect and beautiful. And then I hear a really loud crash, this horrible crash sound. And I look over out the window behind my head and someone had just crashed a car into my neighbor's house directly across the street. And there were screams. Um, and the car was like up on the lawn. It hit the, hit the house. It was just nuts, right? It was like, okay, I, I asked my wife to, to take the kids and watch them as I go over and help out, right? Because I'd been a Boy Scout, so I would read the Boy Scout magazine that had like a life-saving story in it every week. So I was like, I'm ready for this. I've been preparing my whole life. So I run out and, you know, I'm going to go help these people. And as I get closer, I recognize there's no blood or anything, thankfully. Um, They don't seem to be seriously injured, but there's a lot of screaming taking place. And the woman is screaming things like, help us, help me, uh, get him off me, help me. So in my brain, quickly assessing the situation, this guy is uh, hurting her and I need to get him off of her, right? So big dude in the driver's seat and this lady in the passenger seat. And it looks like she's trying to get out the passenger door, and he's like grabbing her and not letting her get away. So I hear her screaming for help. I'm like, all right. So I reach in, his window's open. I reach in his window to grab him. He was only twice as big as me, so I figure I had a fair chance, right? I reach in through the window, grab him, and I'm trying to pull him off of her so she can get away. And then guess what happens? As I'm grabbing him to pull him off of her, she starts yelling at me, get off him, don't hurt him, right? And I'm like, Wait, what's happening? You were just asking for help a minute ago, and I'm totally confused. I'm starting to figure out there might be some drugs involved. I'm not sure exactly. And so I'm kind of stunned by her telling me not to hurt the giant man that's twice as big as me anyway, but anyway, so I kind of let go for a minute, and then as soon as I let go of him, he scurries off. He jumps over her, out her window, and he runs down the street. Crazy thing is, he was wearing like t-shirt and boxers. The boxers start falling down. While he's running down the street, my wife is like looking up from the front porch like, I can't believe this is happening. This is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. I think she was like covering my kid's eyes, you know. It was so bizarre. And I think it's a great picture of, of what our lives are often like. We, we sometimes think we found the perfect home And that everything is picture perfect. Everything is so sweet. This is the way it's supposed to be, right? The biblical word, shalom. Ah, I've made it. And then something horrible happens. You're like, okay, this is nuts. We got to move tomorrow. Like, (laughs) this is not, I don't know what we've done, but I don't know if we want to live here anymore. And I think no matter where you live, whether you live in the worst city or the best city, they're always a combination of glorious, beautiful things and sinful, broken things because that's just the world we live in. We live in a world that reflects the glory of God, that reflects the glory that mankind is made for, yet is also damaged by sin. And so again, just to clarify, some of you grew up in terrible cities, right? Where everybody was on meth and it was, a, it was just a freak show and you're so glad to be in like a normal place like this and you're like, this place is awesome, Right? But I just want to encourage you, you haven't arrived yet. God's preparing a better place for us. Jesus says in John 14, I'm preparing a place for you. This isn't it. Some of you came from a better place, right? You came from one of the top 10 most beautiful cities in the U.S. And then the army moved you here and you were crying. And you're like, I can't believe we're here. This is so terrible. There's no trees. There's no mountains, right? Because the place you were at was so much more beautiful. But again, that place wasn't home. It might have been prettier than this place, but Jesus is preparing a place for us. There's a better place to come. And so our perspective shouldn't be a comparing our cities here on earth. It should be comparing wherever we are to the ultimate city we're we're headed to, our true home in heaven with God. And that enables us to follow Jesus in the here and now. Philippians 2 says Jesus left the perfection of heaven to come here to save us. And then he says he's inviting us to follow him and do likewise, So we focus less on our perfect comfort of being in the perfect city and say, okay, this is where Jesus has me. How can I follow him here? What's that going to look like? So how to love our city, Jeremiah chapter 29. The context is similar because, again, these guys were exiled. They weren't in God's place. They were in the God-forsaken place of Babylon, and they were like, what do we do? How do we do this? Jeremiah chapter 29, starting verse 1 These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metalworkers had all departed from Jerusalem. Okay, so it's putting it in context. They'd all been torn out of their home, exiled to this other place, right? Uh, They'd been taken over by this empire of Babylon. It says then in verse three, the letter was sent by the hand of Elessa, the son of Shaphan and Camaria, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay. So again, lots of context, history. This is real. It really happened. Now here's what it said. Verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Don't decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God is calling his people to make the most of the city, the terrible place to which he's exiled them, he's like, "Yeah, it's a bad place, and it's going to be 70 years. But I want you to pray for it. I want you to seek its welfare. I want you to build up your own homes. I want you to listen to my word. I want you to love your own families, and then I want you to love your neighbors and this crazy city that God has called you to. There are differences in context, right? Very specific historical context of the Old Testament exile. We're not a part of the nation of Israel and we're not in exile thousands of years ago in Babylon. But the New Testament says clearly we are exiles also because we are waiting to be brought home, our ultimate home in heaven. So the New Testament says there is a great parallel here, great similarities. This is showing us the character of God, the kind of God that would exile His people and then tell them, hey, I want you to love the place to which you're exiled. In the same way today, the New Testament says Second Peter very clearly says, it's uh, 2 Peter uh, 2.11, we are exiles, live as exiles, loving the place that God has called you to in the name of Jesus. So let me pray that God would teach us how to do this well, that we'd hear his word, that his spirit would empower us, that, that God would be with us in this time. Let me pray. God, we pray that you would teach us and lead us, that your spirit would meet us in this place that this would not just be merely a lecture, but a supernatural encounter where we hear your voice. We believe that you speak, that you speak to us through this book, that Jesus, you have things to say to us. You write letters to us. Help us to listen, help us to hear you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we've got this big idea. Context is different. It's important to keep that in mind. When you're studying the Bible, you want to study the original context and say, okay, this is what it meant to the first audience, right? But then when we look at the New Testament, we see, okay, we have very strong parallels. We're, we're living in kind of a spiritual parallel to this reality. We're, we're in exile also, Second 2 Peter 2.11. We're, we're not home yet. We're not there yet. We haven't arrived yet. And we are to follow Jesus. We have a Lord, the King of the universe, who left the comforts of heaven, who became a human being, moved into our terrible neighborhood, lived the perfect life in this terrible neighborhood, died a sacrificial death, taking our sins upon himself, rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and then says, hey, do likewise. Live like me. So we see this parallel. Philippians 2. This is what Jesus did. Jeremiah 29. This is what God did with his Old Testament people. And then 1 Peter 2.11. Hey, we're, we're supposed to follow the same pattern. So what do we see when we look at Jeremiah 29? We see that the way that we're going to love our city is by loving the Bible, God's Word, loving our family, and loving your neighbors. Loving God's Word, loving our family, loving our neighbors. We can be overwhelmed by thinking, okay, I got to love the whole city. What is this? 600,000 people, 300,000 people? How many is it? Do I have to love everybody at the same time? Do I have to love all of America, all the nations? How do I do this? He gives us simple steps. Love God's Word. Love your own family. Then Love your neighbors, okay? Um, So starting off, loving God's word. Little background, Jeremiah 28, we get kind of the anti-word. We get a false prophet in Jeremiah 28. So I encourage you to go back and read it on your own time. The guy's name is Hananiah. And so it's really interesting. We get in Jeremiah 29, a letter from God. Like this is what God says. It's a letter written directly to his people. But in Jeremiah 28, we had a false prophet, Hananiah who said, hey, here's the plan. Don't invest in this city because you're only going to be here a couple of years and then it's all going to be over with, right? Han and I was preaching the message that everybody wanted to hear. Han and I was like the cool megachurch pastor that had a huge social media following and everybody loved what he said and he made everybody feel better. Now, I got to be careful. Um, I, we're not against megachurches, right? It, it, we're, our goal as a church is to grow larger and more powerful and take over the city, right? So we all want to get there, but there is this thing that can happen where teachers arise by teaching what people want to hear and not what God's Word says. That's what Hannah and I was doing. The Old Testament is clear about that. The Old Testament says there's always going to be teachers that teach God's Word, and they are going to be teachers that teach what people want to hear. So here's the question. Do you love God's Word, or do you love other messages, teachings that make you feel better about yourself, that make you feel like you're the hero of the story? Or do you love God's word where God is the hero and we get to be rescued by him and we need to be rescued by him? That, that's the difference. Every other religion says, hey, if you do enough good things, then you'll force God to bless you. Christianity says, no, God has blessed you in Christ. You could never do enough good things, but God did it. God took our sins upon himself on the cross. God gives us his perfect righteousness. It's a different message. Which message are you going to pay attention to? Are you going to love God's word or love your own word or other people's word or other people's messages? I grabbed a picture here of people gossiping. I was just thinking about how, you know, there's just these competing voices we listen to all the time. Uh, Social media, if you're involved at all, is basically just like a giant... Um, high-tech gossip machine, right? Like that's kind of its primary purpose. Some good things can happen. I'm involved from time to time on social media as well. I kind of cycle on and off because it's like grotesque and I get off for a while and then I get back on and then I get back off. Um, What are you gonna listen to? Are you gonna listen to gossip? Or are you gonna listen to God's word? And it's not just listening, but it's living it out. Uh, Biblically, loving God's word is not just having a bunch of facts in your head, it's not just information transfer, right? Like if, if that's how it worked, I could kind of be prideful because you know I'm a Bible teacher. I've been teaching this book for a while. And I know a lot of Bible, y'all. Did you know that? It's not the same thing as loving God's word. It's not the same thing. When God looks at me, he says, are you living my word? James says, don't just be hearers of God's word, but be doers of God's word. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? Do we love God's word? That doesn't just mean studying it. Studying it's important. We're a Bible church, okay? We're going to keep pushing you to study the Bible. But if you're not obeying it, that's, it's all just a waste. If you're not loving God and loving other people, it's all just a waste. So loving God's word means not just reading it, listening to it, putting it in your head, but, but putting it in your, your heart and your hands and applying it and living it out in the world, loving God's word. Here's what's really crazy is God just straight up writes a letter to his people, right? He gives them a letter. Now, in verse eight and nine, we see, uh, let's read 28, eight and nine, or 29, eight and nine. Hananiah had done his thing in chapter 28, and here's his response. Chapter 29, verse eight. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. What does that mean? He's saying there will, all, there will always be competing voices. 1 John 4 lays this out really clearly, right? 1 John 4, it's like, there's gonna be all kinds of spirits and voices in the world. What are you gonna listen to? Are you gonna to listen to the, the spirit of Jesus? Are you gonna to listen to the million other voices that are out there? Now, to be clear, sometimes there's agreement, right? Our book often agrees with other people and other religions and self-help books and all this other stuff we can listen to. And so there's a lot of overlap. It's not like it's evil to ever read other things or other look, every, uh, ever look at other books. But this has to be the Supreme Court. This weighs everything else that we hear and see and read and understand. So there's this direction of like, hey, be nice to people, right? Lots of other religions say that. This book tells us you can only do that through Jesus. He's your only hope. And so, so we need what this book has, which is different than what the other books say. Uh, so look again at verse uh, 2. No, not verse 2. Where is it? Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God is speaking to us. In this moment, what's really fascinating, these guys were exiles. They actually got a letter, right? This was the letter that was written to them. Do you ever wish that God would just write a letter to you? Like he would just tell you, This is what I've said. This is what I have for you. You ever wish that? Yeah. This is theme we see in a lot of literature. Why is God silent? I wish God would speak. The Bible says he has spoken. Number one, he speaks constantly to us in creation. Psalm 19 says there is no place where you can't hear his voice. He's speaking to you all the time. Number two, he's written us letters. We call it the Bible, I really want to encourage you to begin building your life around this book. As we like to say, it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus, the Bible. These 66 inspired books. I think we miss the reality sometimes that God has written us a letter because he's written us so many letters. Like we're, we have this abundance of riches where we live in redemptive history, having a completely bound book in multiple translations with all these helps that help us to understand it. It's kind of like, man, I wish God would just write me a love letter. And God responds by giving you like this chest packed full of thousands of letters. You're like, oh, okay, God, that's a little too much, right? <laughs> You're creeping me out now. That's too many letters. He has written you a letter. God loves you. He's clearly laid that out by sending Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and to rise from the dead. So start reading the letters. It's hard to read it all at once. It's an entire library. It is 66 books, but you gotta start. Start somewhere, paying attention and loving God's word. Not just listening to it, not just reading it, but beginning to live it out as well. If we're gonna actually love our city, we need to listen to God's voice because otherwise we're gonna take it on our own. Apart from God, we're gonna try to do our own thing, right? Right? Two ways that we often respond to the city we live in. Uh, We have difficulty in the city we live in and we can respond by just trying to numb ourselves, right? That's one way to respond. Man, life is hard, so I'm just gonna kind of pursue sex, drugs, and rock and roll and just try to make myself feel better. That's how a lot of people respond to the city God's called them to. Or we can respond with willpower and strength and say, you know what? I'm gonna do such a good job. I'm gonna make this place so good that we're just going to transform the world and God will be forced to bless me. It's kind of the religious way of responding to the city God's called you to. There's this third way, and that's admitting, man, we're not there yet. The world is broken. God, I need you. Will you help me? I need your grace. And as we call out to him, seek him, study his word, he enables us to take next steps. So love God's word. Uh, We have some basic ways that we call you every week to do this. I'm going to You know, jump through it real quickly. We talk about gather, serve, and worship, uh, or gather, serve, and join. Uh, Gathering, God may call you to a different church, right? A lot of people move in and out of Colleen. If God calls you to another church in another city, look for a church that is Bible-based. It is based on God's Word, not just on man's ideas, but on God's Word. Um, Gather around His Word in a Bible-centered, Jesus-teaching church. Um, serving on a team. It's great to serve on a team. One of the best ways to grow in understanding God's word is to begin trying to help other people to see it and hear it, to start seeing it through the eyes of people that maybe have never read it before. That's a fantastic way to grow in your understanding of loving God's word is to start sharing it with others, serving on a team, and then joining a group. We talk about this all the time. Join a group where you can make God's word the center of it, and then make obedience to God's word the goal. So because we're a Bible church, we often focus so much on Bible study that we can make it objective, right? We all wanna get better at understanding the Bible, so we all study it together, and we can use these tools that are really helpful to study it and pick it apart and understand it in its original context and make sense of it. What can happen is it can become so objective, we're not actually being formed by it. So look for groups that are Bible-based, right? A Bible study, maybe, but where you're actually sharing life. You're admitting your problems, You're praying for others. You're asking others to pray for you. Those elements need to be joined together when you join a group. And I would say for those of you that are skeptics, if you're not sure yet that you can trust God's word, two things that I would say to you. Number one, there are are all kinds of apologetic answers for the questions you have. Ask the questions. I'd love to sit. I would be privileged to sit with you and answer some of those questions. There are great answers out there. We call it apologetics. It's giving a defense for why the Bible is reasonable. Uh, When I came to faith, uh, I had a youth pastor that then in college would send us some of these articles to help us understand why it made sense. I came to faith in Jesus. The gospel made sense. I started following Jesus. And then I had all kinds of questions about the Bible. I started reading and I was like, well, this seems weird and this doesn't make sense. And what about this? I had all kinds of questions. Don't be lazy and just walk away from Jesus. Actually ask your questions. And again, I'd be privileged to walk through some of those questions with you. And then also, I would say, if you're skeptic about the Bible, just make it about Jesus. Focus on him first. Get to know Jesus. Study his life. Hear what he said. See what he did. Wrestle with him first. And then make your understanding of the entire book secondary to that. Okay, that's the first point. Love God's word. Second point is love your family. Love your family. Anybody ever been on an airplane? The airplane, uh, they say, if the oxygen masks pop out, you got to put it on your own face first and then put it on others, Right? Same concept here. We can't love the city if we don't love our family first. Somebody comes to me and says, "Hey, I want to dramatically change the city by starting ministry X, Y, and Z. I'll I'll first start with like, "How are you doing in your neighborhood? Are you loving your neighbors? Are you loving your family? Are you loving the people you work with?" Right? Like, start with the closest circle first. And so, as we move through the outline, we're going to start with love your family before we go to love. Your neighbors, before we go to loving the whole city and changing the whole world, love your family. Look at verses five and six. So, dramatic letter comes from God. God sends them a letter, and here's what God has to say in the letter. Verse five build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. What I want you to hear is how anticlimactic this is. You get a letter from the God of the universe. Here's what the letter says. Get a house. Buy some food. That's pretty much it, right? You're like, God, what is your your will for my life? Well, I want you to find a place to live, get a bed, sleep at night, get a fridge, put some food in the fridge, eat the food, right? Make some meals. That's basically what God is saying here. He's saying live a normal life. Love your family. He goes on to be much more Family-oriented here. Chapter 29, he says, So, so buy some houses, uh, build some houses, live in them, plant some gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons. Just a little aside here. He's not saying, hey, one man, take multiple wives, Okay. That is biblically forbidden. People in the Bible did that. And when they did it, it was wrong. Okay. So again, something people get mixed up about. People don't understand their Bibles. They think whatever happened in the Bible is always right. No, lots of stuff people did in the Bible was wrong and God did not approve of it. Jesus makes that clear. Okay. So you're not supposed to have a bunch of wives, just have one. So he's saying, community, find wives and and husbands and Have sons and daughters and and multiply, right? So he's going on. Take wives, have sons, have daughters. Take wives to your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So what's he saying? Love your family. Build a normal life. Find a place to stay. Start buying groceries, get a fridge, do your basic things, right? Do the things you need to do to survive. Put the oxygen mask on your face first and then you can start helping other people. I want you to think about this through the lens of how God calls us to worship him through the Sabbath. There's this rhythm. The Sabbath says that we're supposed to set aside a day every week to just stop, stop our normal work, relax, rest, worship God. That's the beauty of of the Sabbath. It just means rest. It's funny because it's one of the most debated of the 10 commandments and it's the easiest one, right? And so God says, just rest, take a break. But what's implicit in the command of Sabbath? What's implied there? Work six days, right? So there's this like normal rhythm. Sometimes in churches, we're so idealistic. Like we want to reach the world. We want to tell everybody about Jesus, which we should and which we will do. But there's also this inward, just just love your family and like find a place to live and live your normal life, right? You can't do Sabbath without six days of, of work. Same thing with giving and what we spend our money on. Um, Old Testament, we've got tithing and gleaning, Right? Tithing is where you set aside 10% of your goods and your money to share with others. What does that imply? You're keeping 90%. Now those numbers are debatable. Some would say it's like 80, 20, you know, because of the different tithes and stuff. But you get the point, right? You're keeping most of your stuff. Most of your life, this sounds horribly selfish, most of your life is about your own home and family. And that, like, that's normal. God's called us to live a normal life, to love your family. And I just want to stop for a minute and say, if you're single, I'm not excluding you, right? If you're single, you need brothers and sisters in Christ. You need a squad to run with. You probably need a roommate to afford housing at this point in history, um, right? So the basic building block of how God does this is called the family, And so on the one hand, we don't want to fall into the idolatry of the nuclear family and make it everything, right? White picket fence and all that. But it is also God's plan and God's basic building block. If you don't have that, that's okay. God still works through you. The new covenant's all about working through those who don't have normal families. We can all be fruitful in the kingdom of God. We can all tell people about Jesus. We can all make disciples, right? But the idea, the principle here is start with your basic home unit. Who who is your circle? Be about your circle first before you start trying to be about everybody else's circle in the whole world. Focus on your own family. Gleaning is another Old Testament way of caring for others. that says, have a farm, have a business, and then leave the fringes for the poor so they can come and help themselves, right? When you're harvesting your crop, leave some of the edges and let the poor have some of those edges, right? What does that imply? That implies you're harvesting most of your crop, right? Most of it goes to you. So this, this sounds like, a, a, like the most non-Christian point ever. I'm saying we're all about ourselves. No, but like the normal daily life is you change diapers, you make meals, you water your trees, you pay your rent, right? The normal Christian life is being about your own circle. And then that's like the platform out of which you can serve others. That's a, a little mini community then you've built to which you can welcome others into it. So I grabbed a picture here of a dad reading kids a story. Um, read to your kids. Love your kids. Invest in your own family. If you want to go into full-time ministry, one of the first requirements is that you love your own family. That's like written into the text. You can't love other people if you don't know how to love your own family. You can't be responsible with other people's lives if you haven't learned to be responsible with your own family. How are you serving the people that are in your own circle? Do you have a healthy family? Do you have a healthy spiritual life? Do you have healthy rhythms if if you're single or if you're married with kids? Do you have a healthy home life? What does your circle look like? Are you loving Jesus with the few things that he's given you? Ephesians 5 and 6, kind of the transition there at the end, gives all these well-known things. It says, because Jesus has loved you in Ephesians 1 and 2, therefore, Ephesians 5 and 6, be faithful. Husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Wives, respect your husbands unconditionally. Bosses, treat your employees well. Employees, serve your bosses well. Parents, love your kids well. Kids, obey your parents. Like these just basic things. That's the normal Christian life. That we would love our family. We would love our workplace. We would love the people that God's put around us. Finally, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says it this way. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So again, do you want to change the world, but like you, you can't live a normal life? <laughs> God's like, get that, get that in shape first. Build some houses, plant some gardens, love your family, l- live a normal life, and then we can impact the world. So last point, love your neighbors. This is the whole love the city thing. In our next four sermons, we're going to talk about this more, but it's really the final point that can only come after we love God's word and love our own family, right? If you don't love God's word and you're not listening to him and hearing what he's done for you in Jesus, if you're not loving your own circle, your own family, the place where God's put you, then you can't love beyond that. So love your neighbors. Jeremiah 29, 7 through 13, verse 7 but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So I was like, okay, that's the next step. You've been called to this evil empire where they have destroyed your life, build yourself a normal life, listen to God's word, not the false prophets, love your own family, and then seek the welfare of this evil place that God has called you to. You ever just get frustrated when you read the news and you're like, man, the world's going to pot. You ever feel like that? Yeah, they did, big time. And that, that's a normal way to feel. And what are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to love this crazy world that God has called us to. We're supposed to seek its welfare. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Another translation of that would be prosperity. Seek its prosperity. In your prosperity, it'll find Prosperity. Uh, Seek the good of the city to which God has called us. He goes on in uh, verse eight and nine, the part I already read about, don't listen to the false prophets, right? We already kind of covered that. Listen to God's word, not the false prophets. And then in verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Did I ever talk to you about the fortune cookie verse part? Sometimes I forget what I say in the nine o'clock service on the 11th. I don't think I talked about this yet. This is like a famous coffee mug fortune cookie verse, right? Anybody ever heard this verse before? Um, And so I just wanna give you a little background. In Christian circles, this can be debated because sometimes this can be abused like a fortune cookie where it's like, I can say, I don't really love God and I'm not obeying him, but I've got this coffee mug that says, God has plans for me. He loves me. He's pleased with all my bad lifestyle choices, right? And so we can kind of do this out of context, ripping of encouraging verses and putting it on a bumper sticker, t-shirt, coffee mug, whatever. Use it like a fortune cookie. That's a dangerous thing and we shouldn't do that. We should understand the scriptures in their original context, written to exiles, Old Testament people of Israel. What does that mean? Then pull that forward and understand how it's come to a greater fulfillment in Jesus But we also want to watch out for this extreme of saying things are always written to a first audience and we always want to understand it in this kind of in the weeds, ancient context. It doesn't even apply to us, right? Like that's another danger. It's like because people do fortune cookie Bible versing, we're just going to not even pay attention to it. There's some really good, rich stuff here. This is telling us about the character of God. He's saying it originally to that certain people group in a certain exile in a certain city But the New Testament tells us again and again that that is who God is. What's encapsulated here in Jeremiah 29 is that's a great summary of how we see God revealed in the gospel. So let me read it again. Verse 11. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That is true in Jesus Verse 12 says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So again, first audience, He's talking about a physical exile in a real place called Babylon thousands of years ago. But what does the New Testament do? Again and again, it takes these prophecies of the Old Testament and says, yeah, there was, a, there was a physical return to exile. God did bring his people back. You know, the stories of Nehemiah and Ezra tell that story for us. He brought his people back into the promised land, but we're not really back to the promised land until we see Jesus face to face. We're not really home until we're in that place that Jesus has prepared for us. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. That's our true home. And the New Testament is very clear that, yeah, there was this kind of temporary exile and return thing, but that was just a picture of a much greater exile and a much greater return. And that's what we're looking forward to. And so we love our city. We love our neighbors out of that. And so I grabbed a picture here of someone bandaging an arm because there's a a kind of ideal I think we have sometimes of like, man, to love our city means soup kitchen, food pantry, you know, means those kind of things, just attending to basic physical needs. Yes, that's part of it. But what I want you to understand is that Christians always walk a tension between if we don't care about physical needs, we're hypocrites. But if all we do is care about physical needs, we're not Christians anymore, Christians know that the ultimate need is a spiritual need. And so we're always to be living in both of those worlds. If you see someone that's bleeding out, you help them, right? That's what Christians do because Jesus loved us. We love other people. And that includes attending to physical needs. But by definition, what makes a church a church and not a hospital or a school or an orphanage or all these other good things we could be is that we're a broadcast center of the story of Jesus that the ultimate way to love our neighbors is to tell them about Jesus to so say, you're separated from God because of your own sin and my sin. We're all separated. We're all on the outside of paradise. None of us are home because we ran away from home. We rebelled. We left Eden with Adam and Eve. We've all made that same decision and said, God, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. And we've ruined the world and we've ruined our own lives. But Jesus took our sin upon himself in the gospel. And if we forget that message we're not a church anymore. So should, should the church be about bandaging physical needs? Of course, yes. We're going we're gonna to resettle an Afghan family that's, that are refugees. That's one of the things we're doing. Uh, we give money to the food pantry. You know, we do things like that, but our primary goal, our primary business is proclaiming the message. You even see this kind of um, primary, secondary focus in Acts chapter six. Um, there's a problem where some Widows are being overlooked in Acts chapter six, and it's a real issue. There seem to be some like multi-ethnic, they're having trouble getting along, some ethnic differences, and, and real widows that have real needs, right? And what do the apostles and elders do? They say, "These needs need to be attended to, but we've got to prioritize prayer in the ministry of the word. We've got to prioritize the message. If we lose that, we've lost everything. So then they elect some guys. They elect some deacons to take care of these. Physical needs, and they deal with it. So they do deal with the physical needs, but they're always prioritizing the message. And so different churches answer this in different ways, right? Like, how much of our time as a church are we going to attend to physical needs? Well, the primary thing we're going to be about is broadcasting the Word of God. And then there's going to be a trickle down of like, if if we don't care about people, right, then we're not really living out the message that we believe. And that's going to look different in, in different churches based on the needs of the community, based on the giftedness of the people. So one of the great examples of this that Jesus gives is in Luke chapter 10. He says in the Old Testament, we're told to love our neighbors, and we're still under that same command, love your neighbor. This dude comes up to Jesus, and he's like, okay, well, who's my neighbor? (laughs) This guy's thinking, you mean love my nice neighbors, right? That's what I would prefer. Only love the neighbors that you get along with. Only love the fun neighbors. Only love the easy neighbors. And what does Jesus do? He gives the good Samaritan story. I can't go through the whole thing, but go back and read it. Jesus turns their world upside down. He says, oh, you think you only have to love the good people and not the bad people? I'll tell a story where the bad person is the hero of the story. Where the bad person loves the good person. Then he's like, okay, who's the loving one in this story? The guy's like the bad guy, right? (laughs) It's like, it doesn't matter what tribe you're in. It doesn't matter where you live. It's like, are you going to love people or not? That, that's, that's the end result. Are you going to do God's word or are you just going to talk about it? So we're to love the people God's put around us. And I would just say a good way to think about this is just start with one or two. Pray, right? That's part of what he says in the instructions to the exiles. He says in verse seven, pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. Don't just do, but pray and ask God to lead you. And then don't think I'm going to love everybody all the time and fix everything because you can't. You're not that big. Start with just an incremental next step. Who's the neighbor that you can love? It might be physically the person living next door to you. It might be the person you work with. It might be a person at your kid's school um, where, where is that next step? Look for areas where you can use your gifts to meet other needs and help people to understand the grace of Jesus as you meet those needs. Resist the temptation to think that you have to start a citywide organization to make a difference. You don't need a platform to love your neighbors. You don't need a brand. Right, We live in this world that is over-marketed, over-social media. Like, there's just too much of it. And we think we need a platform, we need followers, we need a brand, we need marketing, we need a logo. No, nope. just love your neighbor. Then, if you get really good at loving your neighbor, and then maybe loving two neighbors, and then maybe loving three neighbors, maybe then you've got some experience under your belt and you can help teach other people how to love their neighbors, right? Maybe then it'll multiply into an organization, But start by loving your neighbor. So the secret to loving our city is not loving everybody everywhere all the time, 600,000, 400,000, whatever the numbers are that you want to deal with. Love your neighbors. Who are your neighbors? Who are the people that God's placed around you? Pray and ask God to show you. We'll wrap up here. Hebrews 11 says... Because we have this better city, because we have a city with real foundations, a city that's solid, a city that's good, a city that's better than the worst city any of you have ever lived in, and a city that's frankly better than the best city any of you have ever lived in. Because we have a true home in heaven with Jesus, that enables us to love the place he's called us to now. That enables us to follow Jesus. We see what Jesus has done for us. He left the perfection of heaven. He moved into our neighborhood so we can, we can follow him. We can love this place because Jesus has loved us first. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So how do we love our city? We love God's word, first of all. We love our own families, our own circle. And then we start to love our neighbors one at a time. And God's gonna use us to make a real difference as we do that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you call us to yourself in Jesus. Help us to make a difference as we see Uh, Many new people come and go this summer. We pray that you would use us for your glory uh, to give them a little glimmer of hope, a little glimmer of your grace in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.